show. Oh, hey, morning, Flo. Morning, everybody. Hey, Chief. Damn. You look like hell, Chief. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, I look better than your wife when I left her this morning. <laughs> While you were drinking or sleeping or whatever it is you deem so necessary on Monday morning, Phil Larson called, said some kids are stealing the gnomes out of his garden again. Oh, those garden gnomes again. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll make it right on that. On a more pressing matter, Joyce Byers can't find her son this morning. Mmm. Okay, I'm gonna get on that. Let's Joy, Joyce is very upset. Flo, Flo, we've discussed this. Mornings are for coffee and contemplation. Chief, she's coffee your... and contemplation. Flo. Hey, everybody. This is Tony with the Stranger Things podcast. And before I get into uh, chapter 10 called The Outsiders, I would like to let everyone know that there is some uh, language that may be objectionable to uh, some of those within uh, the queer community. Uh, This language is uh, in the book and it is read uh, verbatim. So I just would like to uh, let everyone be aware of that fact. And um, this does not uh reflect my views in any uh, in any way and I never would or have used uh these words that will be uttered but I just wanted to uh to give a uh, a heads up about that before I jump into uh chapter uh chapter 10 chapter 10 the outsiders in season 2 chapter 1 mad max Jonathan stops in Will's room and finds his younger brother drawing a picture titled Zombie Boy. It's a self-portrait. Jonathan asks if someone called him that at school, but Will is reluctant to talk. He says he is tired of people treating him like he's going to break, like he's a freak. You're not a freak, Jonathan says. Yeah, I am, Will responds emphatically. I am. Jonathan, of course, knows what it feels like to be a freak. You know what, he tells Will, you're right, you are a freak, but it's okay, he says. It's okay to not be normal, to not be like everyone else. I'm a freak too, he says. I can be lonely, he acknowledges, but it can also make life more interesting. The thing is, he says, nobody normal ever accomplished anything meaningful in this world. Bob's entrance seconds later challenges the logic of that statement. Sometimes, as Bob later proves, normal people can do extraordinary things. But Will seems to get Jonathan's point. Being different is okay. The 1980s was a paradoxical decade when it came to difference, particularly for boys. On the one hand, it was a decade that seemed more comfortable even than today, with men defying traditional gender expectations. Just look at the pop stars on MTV in that decade, not just Bowie, who Jonathan references, but also Prince, Michael Jackson, George Michael, and just about every British New Wave band. Moreover, many movies from the decade featured boys who were sensitive, vulnerable, and different. For example, E.T., Elliot, The Goonies, Mikey, Karate Kid, Danny, Stand By Me, multiple characters, and The the Outsiders, multiple characters. 
Of course, the 80s were also the decade of macho action figures like Rambo, The Terminator, and Dirty Harry. But in the 1980s, at least in pop culture, it was okay for guys to look, act, and be different. Yet it could not, yet it could also not be okay, especially in more uh, provincial conservative towns. Take, for example, the case of Ryan White from Komoko, Indiana, a town not unlike the fictional Hawkins. White learned he had contracted HIV from a blood transfusion. White was a, a, a uh, hemophilic in 1984. He was 13 years old. When he returned to school, he was treated terribly by some of his fellow students who called him a queer and a faggot. White was harassed, mocked, and bullied. Obscenity lace notes were left in his locker and home mailbox. People at school and church treated him like a leper. It was really bad, recalls his mother, uh, Jean, uh, Jean uh, White Ginder. People were really cruel. People said that he had to be gay, that he had to have something done bad or wrong, or he wouldn't have had it. It was God's punishment. We heard the God's punishment a lot. That somehow, some way, he had done something he shouldn't have done or he wouldn't have gotten AIDS. White was given just six months to live when he was diagnosed with HIV in 1984. Yet he managed to live six more years and became one of the most important voices in educating the American public about AIDS. He died in 1990. In addition to informing people about AIDS, White's story also spoke to persisting bigotry surrounding boys perceived as queer, whether because of sexual orientation or simply because of other differences, differences that they had. We see this bigotry surface over and over in Stranger Things, particularly with the Briars brothers, and especially with Will, a Ryan White-like figure who wants nothing more to simply live a normal life. I know, it's weird. Will's older brother Jonathan is perhaps the most obvious outsider in Stranger Things, the archetypical wounded, misunderstood introvert. It is clear very early in the show that Jonathan feels alienated in Hawkins, Indiana. It's not just his musical taste, it's not just the insular town or the way or the way he's treated at school. It's not just his parents' divorce or the role he is forced to play at home in place of his absent father. Note in season one, chapter two, the weirdo on Maple Street, how he is making breakfast for the family and how he takes an extra shift to help them make ends meet. It is a combination of all these things and a general sense of buried pain that almost swallows him when his only real friend, his brother Will, goes missing. Jonathan is quiet, introspective, and gentle, not qualities generally valued in the often cruel, stratified world of high school. When we first see him in that environment in Chapter 2, The Weirdo on Maple Street, he is putting up missing posters for his lost brother. The popular kids look on with a combination of contempt and amusement. Oh God, that's depressing, says Steve while his friend Tommy speculates that Jonathan may have killed his brother himself. 
Only Nancy has the decency to show compassion and approach Jonathan, assuring him that Will will be okay. But no one else seems to care. He is alone, invisible at school. His alienation is exemplified by his interest in photography. His camera allows him to interact with the world, but still remains somewhat detached from it. As he later explains to Nancy, I guess I'd rather observe people than, you know, talk to them, says Nancy, completing his sentence. I know, it's weird, Jonathan says, but he explains that photography to him feels more authentic than everyday superficial interactions. Nancy seems to understand, but most people don't. In chapter three, Holly Jolly, Steve and his group of friends confront Jonathan after school about the photos he took in the woods. They steal his backpack and begin shifting through the pictures. One girl calls them creepy. Jonathan defends himself, saying he was just looking for his brother. No, says Steve, this is called stalking. When Nancy sees the photo he took of her undressing by the window, Jonathan is humiliated. Sensing this, Steve continues to push and label him a deviant. That's the thing about perverts, he says. It's hardwired into them. You know, they just can't help themselves. He proceeds to rip up the photo and shatter Jonathan's camera. Alone in the world. Jonathan is also what some might describe as soft. He isn't aggressive with the girls. He doesn't play sports. He doesn't like violence. It is implied that his father, Lonnie, was abuse abusive physically and emotionally. We learn, for example, that Lonnie tried to make him more of a man in a variety of ways, including forcing him to shoot and kill a rabbit at the age of 10, which Jonathan refused to do. Jonathan seems to have a visual, uh, visual disgust for his father and what he represents, which is not to say he is a wimp. At several points, he stands up force, forcefully to his father. And in season one, chapter six, the monster, he beats the hell out of Steve. That only comes, however, after Steve relentlessly pushes him past his breaking point. His first instinct is to simply, is to simply get Nancy out of the situation safely. But Steve keeps taunting. He implies that Nancy is a slut and that he always thought Jonathan was a queer. Then he attacks Jonathan's family, saying that his mother is such a screw-up and no wonder Will went missing. That's when Jonathan turns around and delivers a colossal punch to Steve's face. He doesn't let up either. Something inside of him seems to have snapped, and he continues to assault Steve on the ground until he is removed by a police officer. Later in the police station, Flo tells Nancy, Only love makes you that crazy, sweetheart. And that damn stupid. Yet Jonathan's default mode is nonviolent and gentle. In season one, chapter five, the flea and the acrobat, for example, when he and Nancy come across the wounded deer in the forest, Jonathan tries to take charge to be a man and put the deer out of its misery. But seeing it laying there bloody and whimpering, he can't pull himself to pull, bring himself to pull the trigger. Similarly, in Season 2, Chapter 8, The Mind Flayer, as the demodogs are approaching the Briar's house, Chief Hopper asks if Jonathan can use a rifle. Jonathan hesitates. It is Nancy who steps forward. I can, she volunteers. Jonathan is old, old enough that he has found ways to accept and in some ways 
exalt his outsider identity. In season one, chapter two, the weirdo on Maple Street in the flashback where he's introduced introducing Will to the clash, he tells his younger brother not to worry not to worry about and not going to a baseball game with his father. He's trying to force you to like normal things, he says, and you shouldn't like things because people tell you you're supposed to. Yet this disaffected outsider identity is occasionally punctured by those few people he allows in. In season one, chapter five, The Flea and the Acrobat, when he tries to tell Nancy that she looked alone in her photo he took of her, like she was trying to be someone else, she calls bullshit. She is not trying to be someone else, he says. He just doesn't like Steve. Don't take it, pers don't take it so personally, says Jonathan. I don't like most people. He's in the vast majority. But Nancy's not having it. She was actually starting to think he was okay, she says, and not the pretentious creep everyone else says he is. The remark clearly hits close to home as Jonathan responds defensively, puncturing Nancy's own sense of self in turn. In this way, they are actually good for each other. Jonathan compels her to actually think about what she wants out of life while Nancy allows Jonathan to be less inward and isolated. In season two, chapter two, Trick or Treat Freak, for example, when Jonathan tries to get out of going to a Halloween party because he is taking Will trick or treating, Nancy calls him out. No, no way, she says. You're going to be home by eight, listening to the talking heads and reading Van Gogh or something. Jonathan shrugs. That sounds like a nice night. Nancy, however, prevails in getting out of his getting him out of his shell, and Jonathan ends up going through to the party. Jonathan's mother, Joyce, likewise, tried to get, tries to get Jonathan not to isolate himself so much to let people in. She recognizes he's had a difficult life in certain ways and that he has always been good at taking care of himself, but she implores him not to cut her out, particularly in their joint effort to find Will. This is not yours... To fix alone, she tells him at the police station in season one, chapter seven, the bathtub. You act like you're all alone out there in the world, but you're not. You're not alone. It is a powerful moment of solidarity between a broken mother and son. Joyce knows she's often over overlooks Jonathan for Will, but to rescue Will, they need each other. Gradually, as the series progresses, Jonathan gets better at letting people in, not only his mother and Will, but also Nancy, Bob, and others. Fairies in Fairyland Will faces similar struggles because of his differences. 
Like Jonathan, he is soft and sensitive, which makes him an easy target for bullies. When he goes missing in Season 1, Chapter 1, The Vanishing of Will Byers, his mother Joyce tries to explain this to Chief Hopper. He's not like other kids, she says. He has a few friends, but he is constantly bullied. They're mean. They make fun of him. They call him names. They laugh at his clothes. What's wrong with his clothes? Hopper asks. That's not the point, Joyce responds. Though it does suggest their family's relatively low socioeconomic status as part of the equation. The broader point is that he never fit in. She confides that Will's now estranged father, Lonnie, used to say he was queer, called him a fag. Is he? asked Hopper. He's missing is what he is, Joyce retorts. Will may or may not actually be gay, but there is no question that it is the perception in Hawkins. Like Ryan White, he is a magnet for homophobic epithets. When an assembly is held at Hawkins Middle School to honor him after his assumed death, he is praised as an exceptional student and wonderful friend. Yet his actual friends see the whole thing as phony. Most of the school never knew him or cared about him. To the extent that they were aware of him, it was often to tease him. They even see a couple of kids laughing and snickering during the assembly. Fortunately, Will has a great group of loyal friends. After the assembly, Mike confronts the boys he saw mocking Will. You think this is funny? I saw you guys laughing over there, and I think that's a real messed up thing to do. What's there to be sad about? Responds Troy, one of the bullies. Will's in fairyland, right? Flying around with all the other fairies, all happy and gay. Usually not one for physical confrontation, Mike stands up for Will, pushing Troy to the ground. Then, just as Troy is about to attack Mike, Eleven uses her powers to make Troy pee his pants. It is a great moment of vindication, not only for Will, but the entire group. We stick together. The ragtag group of misfits and outsiders, as explored in previous chapters, was a classic 80s trope from It to The Goonies to Stand By Me. In the case of Stranger Things, in addition to Will and later Eleven, we have Mike, who is awkward and nerdy, Lucas, who seems to be one of the only black kids in Hawkins, and Dustin, who has dystopia, a rare condition that affects the development of bones and teeth, revealed that he also has a condition in real life and has tried to use his platform to education to educate and educate the public about it. These boys don't play sports or run for school council. They play Dungeons and Dragons and belong to the AV club. They are, as Lucas's sister Erica puts it, a bunch of nerds. And along with Will, they are also susceptible to bullying. In Season 1, Chapter 1, The Vanishing of Will Byers, when the boys pull up to school on their bikes, they are immediately confronted by James and Troy, their arch enemies. Step right up, ladies and gentlemen, says Troy. Step right up and get your tickets to the freak show. He proceeds to assign each of them a disparaging name. Midnight, Lucas, Frogface, Mike, and Toothless, Dustin. 
James, the other bullies, mimics Dustin's lisp before forcing him to perform for their amusement. Assholes, says Lucas after they left. Such confrontations persist throughout season one. In chapter three, Holly Jolly, Troy and James sneak up on the gang in the schoolyard and mock them about their missing friend. You know what may, you know what my dad said, taunts Troy. He said he was probably killed by some other queer. Mike tells Lucas and Dustin to just ignore them and begins walking away. James, however, however, trips him and he falls to the ground, cutting his chin. His friends, however, have his back just as he has theirs. When Dustin is mocked for his condition, Mike builds him back up. It's like a superpower, like Mr. Fantastic or something. As mentioned earlier, Mike stands up for Will at the assembly. Dustin, meanwhile, often plays the role of mediator or peacemaker in the group. After the altercation between Mike and Lucas at the junkyard, in which Eleven accidentally knocked Lucas unconscious, it is Dustin that convinces Mike to apologize for drawing first blood. All three of you were being a bunch of little assholes, he says. I was the only reasonable one. Dustin is not afraid to be blunt, but his core quality as a friend and person is loyalty. As he puts it, we stick together, no matter what. While there are occasional risks, the group does just that when it counts. When the most impressive displays of solidarity comes in Season 1, Chapter 6, The Monster. Seeking payback for the assembly incident, Troy and James ambush Dustin and Lucas in the woods. The boys drop their bikes and flee, but are eventually cornered against a cliff. Troy pulls a knife on Dustin and demands to know how they made him pee his pants. I know you did something to me, some nerdy science shit to make me do that. Our friend has superpowers, declares Dustin, and she squeezed your tiny bladder with her mind. Troy doesn't find that explanation funny and threatens to cut off the rest of his baby teeth unless Mike jumps off the cliff into the lake hundreds of feet below. Dustin pleased with Mike not to do it, as he could very possibly die. But Mike bravely steps to the edge of the cliff, looks down, takes a deep breath, and jumps. Mike, of course, is ultimately saved by Eleven in one of the season's most epic scenes. Yet this moment also shows how loyal these boys are to each other, especially when it's needed most. Stay away from him. The storyline of season one, in fact, is driven in many ways by the boys' relentless dedication to finding their lost friend. Often overlooked in this, in his remarkable uh, commitment to that mission, is Lucas. Lucas is a realist, a pragmatist. He is understandably skeptical about Eleven, who he calls the weirdo, because, because he believes she is a distraction from their real goal, which is to find Will. Eventually, frustrated by Mike's refusal to renounce Eleven, he resolves to find the gate himself. In Season 1, Chapter 6, The Monster, we see him gathering together a backpack full of supplies, including a compass, walkie-talkie, and binoculars, and trying on a camouflage, camouflage headband ramble style before heading out on his bike. He is led to the fence surrounding Hawkins' lab, where he climbs a tree and spies on activities 
around the building with his binoculars. It is this resourcefulness that alerts him to the culpability of Hawkins Lab and Will's disappearance and the threat they now pose to the rest of the group, especially Eleven. At the beginning of Chapter 7, The Bathtub, Lucas frantically warns Dustin and Mike that the bad men are coming, allowing them to escape out the side of the door of the Willer's house before the agents arrive. An epic bike chase scene ensues, punctuated by Eleven's heroic van flip. This moment finally allows Lucas to see to see she is on their side. Back at the junkyard, he kneels down next to her, looks her in the eyes, and apologizes. Everything I said about you being a traitor and stuff, I was wrong, he says, putting his hand on her shoulder. I'm sorry. Throughout season one, we see different sides of Lucas's personality. He can be stubborn and interpret, uh, courageous and humble. In season two, however, we get a better sense of his character as some of the racial realities in suburban Indiana emerge. The first illicit acknowledgement of race in the series comes in a more lighthearted moment as the group banters about who was supposed to dress up as Vickman from Ghostbusters for Halloween. Mike says that Lucas was supposed to be Winston, an African-American character who plays more of a supporting role in the movie, but Lucas insists he didn't agree to that. He joined the team super late. He's not funny. He's not even a scientist. Mike responds that Winston is still cool. Why doesn't he dress up as him? Asks Lucas. Mike begins to stammer something. Because you're black, says Lucas. I didn't say that, responds Mike. You thought it, counter Lucas. It's a funny exchange that also manages to make an important point that Lucas, unlike Winston from Ghostbusters, is not content to be token minority, to be the token minority in the group or play a minor role. Mike assumes that he gets to be the most popular and important member of the Ghostbusters team, but Lucas doesn't accept the terms of his logic. He refuses he refuses to be marginalized to a minor player just because of his race. The scene also foreshadows the active role Lucas plays in the group as the rest of the season unfolds. Far from being a token, he actively takes things into his own hand into his own hands. The best example of this is his evolving relationship with newcomer Maxine. When the group first learns of her, they are all, in typical adolescent fashion, paralyzed by inaction, confined to simply watch her from a distance. Max calls it stalking. Lucas and Dustin. Dustin finally summoned the courage to introduce themselves and, inter- and invite her to go trick-or-treating. But all the boys in the party, Lucas, is, Lucas is, one of, is one who is able to earn her trust by being honest and make her feel included. Dustin, of course, is also enamored with the red-headed skater from California. But Lucas ultimately wins her heart by following his father's advice and putting himself out there. Dustin follows Steve's advice to pretend like he doesn't care, which ultimately doesn't work as well. Smartly, however, Stranger Things demonstrates that a relationship between a white girl and a black boy in a small town in the 1980s was no straightforward matter. Before Max and Lucas even became close, Lucas come, comes under the crosshair, crosshairs of Max's older stepbrother, Billy. 
The Duffers acknowledged that Billy was intended to not only be a an ab- abstract human antagonist, but an actual racist whose overall rage of the world manifests via bigotry and violence. Lucas's relationship with Max allowed them to be honest about an interracial relationship that like that would do and how certain characters would react and how a character like Billy would really react to that. We see numerous examples of that throughout season two. In chapter four, Will the Wise, for example, Billy sees Max talking to Lucas after school and stares, stares him down menacingly. When Max gets in the car, he demands to know who the boy is. She tries to play it down, saying he just he's just some kid from class. But Billy doesn't believe her. He grabs her by the arm. Something you learn is that there are certain types of people in this world that you stay away from, he tells her. And that kid, Max, that kid is one of them. You stay away from him, you hear me? A terrified Max is left in tears. Billy's violent rage about his stepsister seeing a black boy persists throughout season two. In chapter five, Dig Dug, he again threatens her after catching her talking to Lucas at the arcade. Still, in spite of the dangers, Lucas doesn't give up on Max. In chapter six, the spy, he rides his bike to her house and rings the doorbell, a risky move to say the least. Fortunately, Max opens the door, but the tension is palpable. For Lucas, Billy is as dangerous as any demogorgon. His friendship with Max is fraught with peril. When Billy walks over to answer the door, you can feel that. Thankfully, Max ends the conversation just in time, telling Billy that it was just Mormons at the door before returning to her room. Once the coast is clear, she climbs out the window and sneaks off with Lucas on his bike. Finally, Billy catches the couple together at the Briar's house in Chapter 9, The Gate. It is a chilling moment. He first confronts Max. I thought I told you to stay away from him, he tells her. He then turns to Lucas, picks the much smaller boy up by his shirt, and slams him into the wall. Max and the rest of the party look on, horrified, but seemingly helpless against against Billy's rage. Lucas looks terrified too, but somehow manages a to sneak a kick to Billy's groin, destabilizing him enough for Steve to jump into the fray again. Steve gets in a few good punches, but is subsequently beaten to nearly an inch of his life. An alert and courageous Max, however, finds one of Will's syringes with a needle and stabs it into Billy's neck. Stunned, Billy turns to attack her, but before he can, the drug begins to take effect, and he collapses. Max grabs the nail-riddled bat and stands over him. From here on out, you leave me and my friends alone, she says. Do you understand? In this way, Lucas and Max's friendship, relationship and friendship is a triumph over racism and bigotry. Seeing them together at the Hawkins Middle School snowball dance at the end of season two is a moving scene, not just because they like each other and have a moment, but because of what that moment represents. It is a great deal of persistence, vulnerability, and courage on both part, characters' parts. And for the show, it represents a much more complete and aware picture of the 80s America than any John Hughes film film in which race is completely ignored.
Will the Wise, Mike the Empath. Another overlooked but significant relationship in Season 2 is between Will and Mike. Will was already perceived as different at the beginning of Season 1, largely, we learn, because of the perception that he was queer. But in Season 2, his difference is further amplified because, for most of his classmates, he was assumed dead and now has returned from the dead. When he comes back to school, he feels even odder than he did before. People stare at him as he walks down the hallway. Crude notes are left in his locker. He is called Zombie Boy and Freak. Much like Ryan White, he is viewed as a pariah, a leper. Moreover, we learn early in Season 2 that Will is having frequent uh, psychosomatic episodes in which he sees and feels things that others do not. He's being treated for these episodes at Hawkins' lab, but for much of the season, the doctors aren't sure how to diagnose or treat what he is uh, experiencing. As the season unfolds, his episodes become more frequent and vivid. Not only does he suddenly find himself alone and frantic in the Upside Down, he also has visions of an encroaching shadow monster. He tells Dr. Owens that the shadow monster makes him feel frozen with fear, that its presence is overwhelming. To deal with this anxiety, Will turns to art, drawing pictures of its tentacle-like form looming in a cloud-filled sky. His drawings make it more tangible and concrete. They are, in fact, the evidence that allows his mother to see that what he is experiencing is not just in his head. Eventually, they also save lives, serving as a visual representation of his spreading now memories and a map of artery-like underground tunnels in Hawkins. Many people try to help Will, his mother Joyce, Dr. Owens, Jonathan, Barb, Bob, and his, Bob and his friends, but they aren't sure how. No one really understands what he's going through. They assume it has to do with post-traumatic stress or perhaps even his family's history of mental illness. In Season 2, Chapter 3, The Pollywog, Bob tries to help Will by confining about his own childhood fears. He finally overcame them, he says, by standing up to them. While offered with the right intentions, however... Bob's advice ultimately hurts Will even more. In the midst of a bad episode, Will runs outside the school into the field. Then he remembers what Bob told him and stops. He tries to be brave and stand his ground. He shouts at the shadow monster to go away, but instead of relenting, the creature reaches down his throat, consuming him entirely. When his mom and friends find him, he seems to be having a seizure, shaking uncontrollably in a trance-like state. Thereafter, he is completely infected. The monster, like a virus, is inside him. He tells his mom that he tried to resist, but now felt it everywhere. Everywhere. It doesn't go away. In subsequent episodes, Will becomes the host for the Shadow Monster, connected by a hive mind. When the Upside Down is torched, it feels like he's being burned inside. When the Shadow Monster wants something or wants him to do something, it seems impossible to resist. 
Understandably, through most of season two, Will is not just very sensitive as Lucas describes him. He is on the verge of a breakdown. The friend who seems to best understand this is Mike. While other people will see Will as a freak, Mike sees him as special, not unlike Eleven. Mike believes Will has true sight, meaning he can see other dimensions regular people cannot. When Mike goes to check on his friend in Chapter 5, Dig Dug, Will confirms as much. But he tells Mike that it is no longer simply that he no longer simply feels like he's in the upside down. It feels like what I saw the shadow monster is feeling. He sees what I'm seeing and I'm seeing what he's seeing. Sensing Will's dread, Mike suggests that maybe this could be a good thing. It means Will can spy on the creature and know what is going what he's going to do. If you know what he's seeing and feeling, maybe that's how we can stop him, says Mike. Will remains uncertain, but Mike steadies his trembling hand and assures him it will be okay. Throughout season two, Mike remains steadfast and loyal to his ailing friend. Significantly, even as Will's memory begins to deteriorate, forgetting who Chief Hopper and Dr. Owens are, he still remembers Mike. In Chapter 8, The Mind Flayer, Mike reminds Will of what they first when they first became friends. It was the first day of kindergarten. Neither of them had any friends, but they found each other by the swing set. If Will's gift is true vision, Mike's gift is that he can feel what others feel. He's an empath, a, comf- a comforter. Just as he offered Eleven an emotional home in Season 1, in Season 2, he serves as an anchor for Will. He listens to Will. He makes him understand and feel understood and accepted. To the rest of the school, Will may be queer, freak, or zombie boy, but to Will, he is Will the Wise. Redemption of the Douche And then there's Steve Harrington. It seems strange to mention Steve in the character about outsiders. In many ways, he is the quintessential insider, popular, handsome, wealthy, athletic. Steve may never be an outsider in the same way as the other boys, but he does undergo a significant transformation, one in which he renounces his place with cool kids and begins to identify with and help the marginalized. Steve's metamorphosis begins near the end of season one. In chapter seven, the bathtub, we see him hanging out with his friends, Tammy and Carol, outside a gas station, still recovering from the beating he took from Jonathan and Nancy's rejection. The incident, however, seems to have triggered some self-reflection. He calls Tommy and Carol out for slut-shaming Nancy just because she's not miserable and cruel like them. The conversation nearly devolves into a fist fight, but Steve seems to realize it's not worth it, and more importantly, they're not worth it as friends. The next time we see him at the movie theater volunteering to clean up the epithets uh, spray-painted by his former friends on the marquee. In Chapter 8, The Upside Down, he finds Nancy and Jonathan at the Briar's house and tries to apologize. Nancy, however, has bigger concerns. Concerns that Steve suddenly becomes aware of when a Demogorgon breaks through one of the walls. The decision Steve makes not to leave 
after Nancy gives him an out, but stay and fight, nail bad and all. Long Nancy and Jonathan remark, remarks his divisive turn as a character. When, John, when Jonathan immobilized on the ground and Nancy out of bullets, Steve re-enters the house and attacks the Demogorgon with a, with a vengeance, picking up the nail bat and swinging in an adrenaline-filled barrage. Eventually, the Demogorgon is subdued, led into a trap, and lit on fire. Steve Harrington, one-time self-centered douche, has become a hero. According to the Duffer Brothers, this wasn't the original plan. Steve was supposed to be the stereotypical cool, cool, cruel jock, but Joe Creary ended up injecting the character with such likability and nuance that the script was changed. Ultimately, instead of giving his char- having his character killed off the original plan, he was given a redemptive arc, surprising cast members and viewers alike. In season two, the transformation continues as Steve takes on the role of full-time babysitter. Over the next and first few episodes, it becomes apparent that Steve is no longer the big shot he once was. We see his insecurity about his academic abilities and post-high school plans. We see his alienation from his old friends. Moreover, it becomes increasingly clear that Nancy has moved on, growing closer to Jonathan as they embark on a journey to get to the bottom of Barb's death. Rather than grow jealous and angry, however, Steve accepts it, taking on a new role and identity as big brother to the kids, especially Dustin. Dustin and Steve first meet up in Chapter 5, Dig Dug. Dustin is at the Wheelers, looking for Mike, when Steve pulls up with a banquet of roses for Nancy. Dustin, however, informs Steve that Nancy's not there, and in any case, they've got much bigger problems than his love life. With that, they hop into Steve's maroon BMW, and the Steve-Dustin-Buddy tandem begins. Still a bit skeptical, skeptical about Steve after season one, views of the show gradually began succumbing to Steve's charm over the course of season two. Vice declared his character's evolution, the Stranger Things transformation no one saw coming, while Vanity Fair wrote that he had become a new fan favorite. 
Meanwhile, baby ne- babysitter Steve and dad Steve went viral as memes on social media. Perhaps a moment that best, that best uh, showed this example of his new role comes in Chapter 6, The Spy, as Steve and Dustin walk down the train tracks. That's probably one of my favorite scenes, acknowledges uh, Creary, because for the first time in doing that, Steve lets his guard down. You can tell that these two characters, although they've been shoved together because they've been dished by their friends, end up caring about each other and looking out for each other. It turns into this big brother relationship. Even though there's a little, they're both a little stubborn and they think they're boss and they've got it all figured out. Underneath, there's this genuine care for each other. And that's what makes this relationship cool. That these two characters you wouldn't necessarily think would ever even interact. The fact that they both bond over not having anyone else is what makes it special. The train track scene is the full manifestation of the new Steve, grounded, decent, and funny. He gives Dustin he gives Dustin relationship advice, shares his hair secrets, and instead of expressing bitterness about Nancy or calling her a bitch, acknowledges that she is special. In the ensuing episodes, babysitter Steve becomes champion of the outsiders, fending off demodogs and bullies alike. In Chapter 6, The Spy, when he leaves the bus in the junkyard to protect the kids from the surrounding demodogs and use himself as bait, Max says, he's insane. Dustin responds, he's awesome. In the final chapter, The Gate, Steve again stands up for the kids, this time to Billy Hargrove. When Billy rolls up in his Camaro, Steve meets him outside and does his best to defuse the situation. It doesn't take long, however, before Billy has him on the ground rolling over in pain. Just as in season one, Steve refuses to back down. As Billy slams the much younger and smaller Lucas to the wall, Steve returns and lands several good punches before being knocked unconscious. While he can't save him in this instance, Max ultimately does the honor by shoving a a needle into her brother's neck. The kids appreciate the attempt. As Dustin puts it, to a groggy and mangled Steve in the car, in the back of the car. He kicked your ass, but you put up a good fight. Steve takes a beating for his transformation, literally and figuratively. But in the process, he becomes a better person. Someone the kids look up to and trust. As Steve tells Nancy, I may be a pretty shitty boyfriend, but it turns out I'm actually a pretty good Damn good, babysitter.